0: Good afternoon and welcome once again to wrestling Memories on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. You can not only hear us on the uh, FM airwaves, you can check us out live and in the moment at www.radionorthland.org. And uh, while you're there, if you... Uh, Don't happen to catch us live. You can check out the page. Check out the Rasslin' Memories page within the website. That will lead you to all of our episodes of the past five seasons and beyond. That's at radionorthland.org. And if you have the uh, app for uh, tune-in, you can check us out live today on that as well, as Pioneer 90.1 is part of that fine free, did I mention free, app for your smartphone. You can go online, too, to their website and listen to it on the uh, Internet as well. Glenn Broggett, along with pro wrestling historian George Shire. And George, just as we uh, got back into the swing of things for our fall season with our tribute to uh, recently departed former AWA champion Otto Vance, uh, comes word uh not even what one day later 24 hours later on uh, la- this past weekend of the passing of uh boy you want to talk about one of the great managers the greatest manager it could be well debated and a lot of people would be in his corner uh we lost bobby the brain Heen and uh, george welcome to the program again thank you for uh coming in this week uh, again under some somber circumstances
1: well it's always a pleasure to be on glenn and uh yeah sometimes it's it's somber you know if we look back i know you mentioned all the many many shows that we have done over the past uh we're in our sixth season now as you've pointed out and when i look at the list of wrestlers that we've had on our show uh some of them are still with us but many many of them have passed on and that's kind of sobering when you when you look back on it but Mm -hmm. nonetheless it's good listening if uh our fans out there want to take a look at uh that long list and look at some of the legends we've spoken to and Bobby Heenan. You know, I think Glenn that if you were to look up the word legend in the dictionary. Wait a minute. What's a dictionary some folks might say today?
0: Huh? <laughs> You're funkin' uh, wagnalls. That, that's
1: sort of a that, that's that's really aging me anyway that when we looked in a dictionary but if you looked up the word "legend," you know that is a word that gets tossed around an awful lot in today's world. I think that everybody, for whatever reason, gets that legendary status to their their title, and you know sometimes it's very very warranted, and other times you know it's just putting somebody over, and it may, you know they may not be as legendary as they're being put up to be. That certainly. And I I know you'd agree with this. And you saw Bobby Heenan a lot less than I did. I mean, only because of your age and coming into wrestling, you know, later. So your your look at him, if anything, on older stuff, you'd have to be looking up. But Mm -hmm. um, if you looked at the word legend, I think you'd have to attach it without any argument to Bobby Heenan. Wouldn't you agree?
0: Oh, you know, above and beyond Bobby Heenan legend. I mean, that's just a no brainer, wouldn't you think? I mean, for all the things that you mentioned and uh, you talked about me, uh, I started watching Bobby in like 1982 around that whole Otto Von's thing. Uh, Yeah, I I came in a little bit late to the party, but I recognize uh, Bobby as a legend from uh, from my start about 35 years ago watching wrestling. I mean, the guy was instant connection to you You gravitated to the tv when this man was on george legend that's uh just a small meaning to what this man brought to the pro wrestling career you put that in all capital letters when you say it
1: oh definitely definitely do and you know i had the opportunity as you know i i started following wrestling in the late 50s and I have, you know, I had the opportunity and I have had the opportunity to see so many of the wrestling managers through the decades. And I could name you some that I, that were good on the microphone and, and they just seem to have that boy, I hate that guy type persona, you yeah. know, that would draw the fans to the arenas. And I mean, guys like wild red Berry and, and, uh, gentlemen, Saul Weiner off and Bobby Davis, and we had locally here Bob, Professor Steve Druck in the 60s. And I mean, there were just, and I, I just named a couple. There were so many that were so good. But the one thing that I can honestly say that in all the years and all the managers that I had the opportunity to see, none, and none is in capital letters when I say that, none were as good as Bobby Heenan. He seemed to have just such a natural wit, such a natural, uh, he was so fluid in, in how he did everything, how he talked and how he worked around the ring with his wrestlers. And, you know, when, and we should also point out that Bobby himself was quite the accomplished wrestler, though he never had any real wrestling training. He never went through a Vern Gagne camp or a Boris Malenko camp or a Stu Hart camp or anything. He picked it up. He just had that. He was a lot like Ray Stevens, who, by the way, was his personal favorite wrestler growing up as a kid. So you can see he molded himself after somebody really good.
0: Oh, absolutely. What a template, yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, and but Bobby, as a wrestler, you know, sometimes that part of his career gets overlooked. Certainly, of course, it did when he when he ventured on to the WWF in uh, 1985, because for the previous 18 years before entering WWF, which, uh, with all due respect to uh, the the generation from '85 to the present. That was the only Bobby Heenan they ever had a chance to see. And 18 years before that, so we're going back to 1967, and actually it was even earlier than that. He was around in 1966 when uh, he kind of got his feet wet. You know, he passed away at 73, so you do the math and go backwards. We're talking about an early 20-something kid here who was already irritating people beyond belief (laughs) at the wrestling matches. And he was doing it really, really well, like he'd been around already a long time when he first entered. And if you ever get a chance, and I know you search the internet and YouTubes and different video things, if you ever get a chance and there's some clip out there from Bobby Heenan on an early uh, tape, you need to watch it.
0: Hmm. Uh, you mentioned it, uh, Bobby. Though I mean, before he got into the the pro wrestling business, uh, you talk about living a pretty hard scrabble life. I mean, he ended up leaving school at a young age to uh, help support his mother and grandmother, who helped uh, hand had a hand in raising him. So this guy was no uh, no no stranger to hard day, hard times, but he was able to kind of parlay that and get into the right place at the right time. And uh, yeah, he, he was an annoying people, but also entertaining people at a young age. And that was able to get him some the, the uh, good attention, I should say, how he got into the pro wrestling business with uh, Dick Atlas, Dick the Bruiser.
1: Well, and you know, when you mentioned about his early life, Glenn, you know, there there are two kinds of people in the world. There are, there are those that, have a have a hard struggle in their lives growing up and maybe into the, their adult lives. And many of them, uh, you know, just because of situations, whatever it is, they don't overcome it and, and life gets even tougher and tougher and tougher for them. And then there's that other select group that they go through the hard times, you know, and as you mentioned, Bobby Heenan, he had to quit school and we're talking, you know, back in the, in the 50s and the, probably the early 60s, had to quit school and take care of his mom. He was a single parent, had to help her with grandma, and life wasn't easy for him. And he, he learned how to uh, overcome that and realize that you know he can make something of himself. He was kind of fortunate because he lived in the Indianapolis area, which during that time frame, Was a little bit uh, pre Dick the Bruiser era when uh, Bruiser and Snyder took over the Indianapolis territory, which became the World Wrestling Alliance. Uh, And then afterward, or before that, you know, there was wrestling there. And I'm sure that's when Bobby had a chance to see Ray Stevens and and different things in in Indianapolis. But he had that opportunity to uh, live close to Dick the Bruiser. And of all things, he used to cut Dick the Bruiser's lawn as a kid. Oh wow! I mean, when you just think about that, that gives you goosebumps. Because growing up, you know, if I said I lived next door to Dick the Bruiser, I think that would be pretty cool. Any wrestler, you know. Well,
0: oh, you'd be the envy of the kids in your gang if you uh, lived close to, to Dick the Bruiser. But then, uh, would you? You'd be a slight bit intimidated right away if you're, uh, uh, you know, mowing his lawn, you know. But I guess Bobby, he probably just rolled with the punches back then. But you didn't, you didn't get that spot over there, kid.
1: <laughs> exactly and you know then he had the opportunity because he knew dick and and uh bruiser would uh, allow him to work at the uh our auditoriums for the wrestling matches he could he was working at the concession stands for a while and selling cokes and hot dogs and then when you think back you think geez you know did i buy my hot dog from bobby heenan i mean i was oblivious to that fact at the time you know this was just this kid behind the counter you know And, but here it was, he had that early, uh, exposure in the auditorium and then Dick gave him the, Dick, the bruiser gave him the opportunity to start carrying the ring jackets back to the uh, locker rooms after the wrestlers were introduced in the ring. And, you know, again, if you want to kind of paint the picture, uh, wrestling being a little bit different back then wrestlers, you know, as you and I both know, they didn't enter the ring to the, uh, entrance music that they do today they walk to the ring they usually irritated the crowd as they hit the ring as you notice they were coming and they had these fancy robes and or uh, ring jackets and different things on you know the good guys would wear a sweater in the ring or a, you know a pullover or something but they always had a ring attendant in those days to collect those jackets robes etc and take them back to the locker room and bobby had that that uh, chore for a while then dick recognized that you know and i'm sure there was some persuasion from bobby you know i i can help you out here and he realized that he kind of had this gift of gab and bobby heenan started to be created and he was put with some wrestlers uh, early on and actually he was given a wrestling match with very little uh, training again as i said and uh, he actually did pretty good for himself so His early start in the business was, you know, just like some of us would have dreamed as a kid, that you'd like to be a wrestler, and he made it. And then, as we can talk, the rest of it is history.
0: Oh, absolutely. And the thing is, yeah, it's, it's almost like that story of the kid climbing up the corporate ladder, going into the mailroom, working his way up different levels with Bobby in the pro wrestling business. You know, it all started with lawn mowing, basically, a happenstance sort of thing. The right lawn, the right person moving up to working at the auditorium, selling the stuff, to carrying the ring jackets back, to getting into the business. And heck, he didn't even have the name Bobby for a while. It, it, he even got a brand new name when he came in I well, mean that's he,
1: true his real name was Raymond heenan
0: yeah absolutely and uh did was it was it just a case of uh, dick the bruiser just naming him that or how did that that come about well you
1: know it, it may very I, I I'd be honest I don't know how the name Bobby heenan came in I'm sure that it was one of those things where Raymond didn't sound well or you know promoters were strange lots because they they sometimes just did things on a whim or something sounded better and And they did it. And, uh, you know, and at first we should point out he wasn't Bobby the Brain Heenan in those early days. He actually started out first being called Pretty Boy Bobby Heenan. And maybe that's where it rolled better. You know, maybe Pretty Boy Raymond Heenan or Ray Heenan didn't, didn't flow right or something. I don't know. That'd be an interesting topic if there were anybody around that could actually... Uh, share the
0: story on that maybe, maybe like richard Vicek. He was pretty boy richard Vycek, maybe we could ask about the dick the bruiser end of that uh, maybe maybe we can get yeah, lead, maybe. some some lead on that because that that already interests me i just had a, a thing when i thought was uh, one day he just didn't remember his name and just say hey bobby get on over here let's talk some business. Yeah. You know, one of those things because yeah. everybody becomes a Bobby or a Pally or some sort of thing. And I just think that maybe that was just a mistaken uh, name uh, thing and that, the Dick had. And it just stick that stuck that way. Just the way some dumb, you know, happy accidents happen.
1: Well, and then to it later on, you know, we said it was pretty boy initially, but then of course it became beautiful Bobby Heenan. So maybe there again, the beautiful flowed better with the Bobby, you know, I don't know. Nonetheless, Uh, He became Bobby Heenan, and a lot of people don't realize that the brain name never came into existence until 1974. So he'd already been in the business for a good seven or eight years when he declared that he was the brain. And I'd also point out that, you know, when you talk about YouTube videos, there is one out there from 1974, and it was when Ray Stevens and Nick Bachwinkle. Had lost the AWA title to Crusher and Billy Robinson for a short couple months. Well, during that couple months of not having the title, they used the storyline that Nick and Ray were fed up with promoters shoving contracts in their faces that they never signed, and opponents showing up that they never agreed to wrestle, and paydays that didn't happen, and they decided they needed a manager to handle all that, that stuff behind the scenes. Now, with that said, Bobby Heenan never did any of that. He was just, he was just a figure. He was another wrestler, manager on the card. Uh, he didn't do any of that stuff. But it was good for the storyline that he was going to get Ray and Nick's title back for them. And on that particular video, they, Nick and Ray were wrestling the High Flyers, who were a very young team at that point in time. And uh, Bobby Heenan is introduced, and if you listen to his, his little spiel, he says, I am Bobby the Brilliant One. Yep. Heenan. So the brain didn't quite come out. And he even made the comment in that same, inter- in that same segment that because I have a brain. Well, then it was shortly, you know, as it progressed very quickly. He became Bobby the Brain. Mm-hmm. And the brilliant one just didn't work flow well and so Bobby the brain heenan.
0: Yeah, that, that that just has a better way of rolling off the tongue. Let's go back to what Bobby's uh seasoning in the pro wrestling business uh in the WWA uh, he worked both, like you said, as a wrestler and as a manager. Uh, let's talk about some of his earlier charges when he was uh, first starting up. And uh, I was looking through some research, and uh, I didn't realize that he uh, had managed at one time Angelo Poffel. I knew about the Chris Markoff, but Angelo Poffel he, he managed, as well as the Assassins. Well, a, a variation of the Assassins. Tell us about some of the guys yeah, that Bobby variation. worked with. Yeah, Yeah. tell us some about some of those guys. Of the
1: Assassins. The uh, the assassins there, for fans that are thinking it may have been Jody Hamilton and Tom Ernesto of the famous team, it was not. It was uh, Guy Mitchell and Tiger Joe Tomaso, who was a seasoned uh, veteran at that point in time. This would be about 1965-66 era. And they had masks on. And uh, just to mention of Guy, Mitch, Guy Mitchell, you know he even worked a little bit in his career as Guy Heenan playing a brother to Bobby Heenan later on, although they never teamed together as a a brother team. But he did wrestle as Guy Heenan. And Guy Mitchell, of course, was really John Hill. That was his real name. And he he became Guy Mitchell, the stomper. He became Gentleman Jerry Valiant and many other names uh, throughout his career. A, A great, great worker in his own right. So back to Bobby Heenan yes he did he managed them and then he did he went on to in 1966 67 uh bruiser put him together with angelo poffle who was the daddy of macho man savage and lonnie poffle and Poffo's partner was chris markoff and they were dubbed the devil's duo that was the name they used Actually, one of the first tag teams, or not probably the first, but one of the first teams that actually had a name to their team. You know, most teams were just two guys and that was it, but this was the Devil's Duel. And Bobby Heenan was their first manager. And uh, Poffo had blonde hair, and of course, Marf- Markov had blonde hair. And, and just as their name would imply, they were evil when Bobby Heenan was in their corner. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And Bobby, also, you talked about Guy Mitchell, uh, of course, uh, went on and also worked as Jerry Valiant. Bobby worked with, with the Valiants uh, at some point during his run in the WWA, as well as the team that he'd revisit uh, in the AWA. Some of the guys, uh, we're talking about the Blackjacks. So he's got into some pretty good company and some really uh, uh, varied workers uh, to, to learn with and also uh, kind of get his himself over as well as his charges.
1: Well, and his really big break came in 1969 when he was put together with Jack Lanza. And a little bit about how Jack Lanza evolved into the blackjack role. You know, Jack started his career in the early uh, early 60s, trained by Vern Gagne, another great wrestler out of the Gagne camp. And for the first part of the 60s, he just wrestled in preliminary matches on the AWA cards and the WWA cards. And uh, he was out in California and he basically was, you know, sort of ho-hum. He was just another wrestler on the card, Jack Lanza. Well, then he started calling himself cowboy Jack Lanza. And that was about the mid sixties. So he had the white cowboy hat and a a pair of uh, cut, cut off uh, jeans that he made, to look like a cowboy sort of outfit, and he had cowboy boots on. and He had a little bit more notoriety on the cards because he was, uh, you know, moved up a little bit, but he was still in that role where he was the baby face, and usually it was every other villain out there, every other heel that was, you know, beating Lanza. And he had some success teaming with Billy Red Cloud and Reggie Parks and Rene Goulet in, in matches with a heel tag team so 1969 comes along and bobby heenan is put with jack lanza they they work out an angle where cowboy jack you know oh my gosh he turns on his partners in a tag team match at the urging of this guy at ringside and that's bobby heenan and born is black jack lanza with a handlebar black mustache and now the black hair the black cowboy outfit, black hat, you know. And that's where Bobby really started to hit his stride because he was big in the WWA. He was came into the AWA and and of course, fans in the AWA, I remember when when Blackjack first came back with Bobby, it was like, "Oh my gosh. Jack Lanza, he even looked bigger, you know, just with the outfit he was wearing and everything." And so Bobby really hit the gold mine there, and they, for many years, about four or five years there, they were pretty much the best heel-wrestler combination, a manager combination in the, in the business. And it was the crusher, for those that don't know, that had a running program with uh, Blackjack Lanza that gave Blackjack the name Oil Can Harry. <laughs> Which is interesting. If you watch the old Mighty Mouse cartoons, you know one of his nemesis in that show, that cartoon was Oil Can Harry, who would look just like Jack Lanza. <laughs> and then he would call, he would call Bobby Heenan, Irene, just to irritate him, because Crusher always had a name, But it was the Crusher in that feud with Lanza that gave him originally started calling him the Weasel. Because he was always sneaking around ringside and interfering in matches and, you know, doing things when the referee wasn't able to see it and that sort of thing. So Crusher would come out on his interviews and he'd have a jack-in-the-box. And if you remember the kids' toys where mm-hmm. you'd wind that little thing up, you know, and as you sang the, the hum the weasel song, pop goes the weasel and this little weasel pops out of it. Well, he would go berserk, you know, I. I'm I'm beautiful. I'm the brain. I have a brain. You know, he'd even do it back then, and and Crusher's crazy. And so it was a great program, but it was the Crusher that did the weasel thing for him originally.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, before Bobby took a you know went to the AWA in '74 full time, he did work some occasional spots from what I've been uh, reading in, as far as my information. Uh, what kind of arrangement was that with the AWA? Was it just something that was worked out with the WWA, or did Bobby just work this independent?
1: He he was, you know, it, it was the part of it that was interesting was because the Bruiser, and this is stuff people didn't know in that era, the Bruiser and Vern Gagne owned the Chicago territory, the Chicago, the city of Chicago together. And so what was unique is you'd get WWA wrestlers and AWA wrestlers on Chicago cards, but you wouldn't get that combination anywhere else in the two alliances. And Bobby, being uh, an employee of of the Bruiser originally, was also an employee of Vern Gagne. And so he was able to go back and forth and pretty much freely and then also work the Chicago Territory where he was big. I want to tell you one thing about how good of a manager he was. If you go to the St. Louis, St. Louis, most fans realize was a for lack of a better word, it was a, or a phrase, it was a territory within of itself. And Sam Muchnik always had these great cards month after month. Sam was a traditionalist, you know, he didn't want to have Baron von Raschke called Baron because he considered Baron to be a title and he didn't want it to overcome the title of world champion. Things like that, crazy things. When Lord Alfred Hayes went in there, he couldn't he didn't bill him as Lord. Because, again, he would perceive that as being higher than the champion. I mean, that was much Nick's thinking. One other quirk that he had was he never allowed any wrestling managers to appear in St. Louis. His thing was is that he didn't want the, the guy at ringside, he didn't want that type of a, a thing on his cards because he wanted to perceive wrestling as more, you know, more sport without all that nonsense, so to speak. So here's a credit. To Bobby Heenan. He is the only manager to ever appear in St. Louis, and I might add, on almost a monthly basis from about 1969 throughout probably the 70s with different wrestlers that he would go in there with the Jacks and with Lanza, etc. So I think that's a credit to how good Bobby was.
0: One hundred percent. You briefly mentioned with with Dick Bruiser and Vern running Chicago. Uh, a guy that uh, I, I I've seen a lot of the films of some of the stuff he's done to voiceover work was kind of the the, the voice of uh, some of the promotions era. Where does the like Bob Loose kind of fit into it? Because I've, I've seen some of his stuff on on YouTube through the years. I've seen some of his wacky uh, little outtakes and and whatnot from uh, the Chicago market. But what was really his his role aside from uh, just being in front of the camera was there a little bit more with bob what, what was the deal with him he's a curious character for me as far as uh, pro wrestling uh, figures go
1: well and the fact that you remember him as that and he is remembered you know as being uh this outlandish type and outspoken type character for bob Luce. um the fact that you remember him that way and i remember him that way the role that they put him in shows that it was the right role he was always listed as the promoter in Chicago, and if you everybody's fortunate enough to have the Chicago programs, you realize they were written. I mean, they were really overkill in how they were they were printed and the pictures and different things and the captions that he would put on it. and his TV ads, he had classic television ads that he would become a part of and, and the way he promoted the show. Uh, but he was basically just the front man. I mean, the promoter was a title that was given to him, but behind the scenes, it was always the bruiser and or Vern that were running the show. And they just had this guy that worked well for that market. And that was his role, and it worked well because we we remember it.
0: Oh, oh, most certainly. And of course, uh, towards the end of uh, his run in the 80s, uh, some of the clips I've watched from there, it talks about he, he had a, did he, from what I heard, he had a, a decent uh, mem- Hall of Fame memorabilia collection uh, of pro wrestling stuff here that uh, just in recent years was, uh, was sold, I think, to Billy Corgan, at least a part of it was, as far as some of his, I don't know about the films, but some of the, the stuff that he had uh, with his little Hall of Fame uh, exhibit that he had in Chicago for a while.
1: Well, he used to do that, you know. They, they always promoted the cards at the International Amphitheater, which was quite the famous uh, wrestling auditorium of the day. You know, if you name wrestling auditoriums, you get Madison Square Garden and you get the Amphitheater in Chicago and the Cow Palace in San Francisco. And I mean, there are just some that are sort of legendary in their own right. And what he would do at the Amphitheater was he had a an area at in the back or on the side of the the walls where he had his own little sort of hall of fame where he had photos and posters and things that he would put in there and it became a thing that fans enjoyed going to see as part of going to that auditorium and it was stuff that he had collected and you just mentioned where it went I, I guess I didn't know that so it's I guess I'm happy it's still out there whatever he had that it was was preserved and Someone has it. That makes me feel good. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, we're going to go back to Bobby Heenan now, George, and I want to talk about right before that transition for Bobby to go to the AWA what was the tipping point for Bobby and, and Dick the Bruiser to part ways and, and what kind of, and that kind of led eventually here to 1974 but what was that what happened there because there was i mean for many years Bobby had a pretty good pretty good stronghold uh, you know in the WWA managing his charges and was doing quite well and things seemingly uh, on the surface seemed to be going well until this split what what was the tipping point
1: Well, I think what I'd like to have fans do is you had mentioned Richard Visek a little bit earlier in our show, Mm -hmm. and Richard Visek did an outstanding book with a lot of research, and it's really a lot of knowledge put into that book. I would like to encourage them to get Richard's book. It's simply titled Brewster. It's available through Crowbar Press, and I, I think what you'll be able to read in there is You know, as in any relationship, there are ups and there are downs and there are rocky roads. And as the Bruiser and Bobby Heenan worked together for a long period of time, naturally, as it sometimes happens, there was some friction. There was some disputes between the two of them. And a lot of it's talked about. And I think I'm just going to leave it where go go to the Bruiser book and get the story. But they had a little parting of the ways. And for a while, you know, obviously Bruiser could go to Vern. Vern, I guess if you talk about mainstay wrestlers, which I've always referred to wrestlers that stay in a territory for a long time, Bobby Heenan became one of those mainstays, though not all the time here in AWA, and though not all the time in WWA, but he was a mainstay. And... He was you could always look for him to return i had a I had a fan ask me the other day coincidentally why did why did Bobby Heenan leave the AWA in 1979 and he went to Atlanta for a, a whole year and was working down there. He was uh, managing the mass superstar killer Carl Cox and Blackjack Lanza and I'm not sure if there was a fourth one in there, but those were the main three, is working for Ole Anderson down there. The storyline in the AWA was Bobby Heenan has been suspended. Stanley Blackburn has had his final final issue with him, and he's suspended indefinitely, the key word indefinitely. So that leaves the door open if you thought about it. Well, really, what was happening behind the scenes was Oli had asked Vern if Bobby could come down. Vern thought, you know, I've used Bobby now for five years because he had him since 1974, and this is a chance for us to, you know, have him go away for a while, and fans can be excited or unhappy when he does return but they'll be happy that he's gone for the present because he was suspended you know he finally got got his due and of course in those days you know glenn people didn't know that when he got suspended that he showed up someplace else they just figured he was out of work i mean that's that's at least the illusion they had you believe because wrestling was promoted that way so bobby heenan was gone the one thing that was never mentioned was that Black Jack Lanza seemed coincidentally to be gone, too. And he was never suspended. He just didn't appear anymore. But he did go with Heenan down to Atlanta. And for that year down there, and I should point out that even for a little bit during that year, the Crusher was down in Atlanta.
0: That's what I was going to ask you about, the, about the Crusher being yep. down there as well at that same time. Uh, how long was he down there during Bobby's one-year run with uh, Georgia?
1: Well, his his stint down there was a lot shorter. I want to believe, without looking at results, that it was probably only about three or four months, not and not consecutive. It was more making appearances. But they did bring him down there because the Crusher could work so well with Heenan, and fans will remember that I think for a brief time there Heenan team or not Heenan Crusher teamed up with uh, Wildfire Tommy Rich, and they had some confrontations with the Heenan family, but that just helped the atlanta promotion and when then when bobby comes back after that suspension then you've got him fresh and that's what promoters would do they wanted their wrestlers to be fresh they wanted them to be oh my god he's back or you know that sort of thing and whatever new nonsense he's getting himself into and bobby just his gift of gab and his wrestling in the awa if you name the mainstays I think you got to put his name next to the Crusher and Vern Gagne and Mad Dog Vashon and Nick Bachwinkle as your primary ones. Larry Hennig, another one. But Bobby Heenan has to be in there
0: because mm-hmm.
1: he, was, he was here and fans remember him throughout.
0: Let's talk, George. Do you
1: remember Glenn? Go
0: ahead. Yeah, later on. Um, I was going to say, uh, you, you asked me if I remember. But I was just going to say, uh, we're going to get to 1975 and talk about uh, Bobby and, and Nick uh, beginning uh, what became a, a run of a couple different reigns for Nick uh, as far as the AWA Heavyweight Championship goes. And around that time, too, when Bobby got in, uh, he formed what became uh, known in various. Uh, Lineups as the Bobby Heenan family. The first, true, what was that first True Stable uh, like, and who was in there as well as talk about uh, you know getting in with Nick and this on the singles end with the uh, t- the world title around seventy five.
1: Well, you know, you always had Heenan and Lanza, and then you had Heenan and the Blackjacks, and then you had Heenan and the Valiants. Though not all of those uh, tag teams were active in the AWA during Bobby Heenan's managing them. They did appear here, the, the Lechaks much later in the 80s, the Valiants in the mid-70s, and they didn't have Heenan, of course, but Heenan managed all of them. And in each of these little uh, managing roles, he always had a family. But in the AWA, which most fans will remember that are listening to our show, you know, for a while he had Dick Boris Brezhnikov, who WWWF fans during that time frame would remember as Nikolai Volkov. Um, And then that also probably remember him even earlier than that is Beppo Mongol of the Mongols tag team, but Bobby managed him. He also had uh, Bobby Duncombe, who came in, in 1974, 75. And what really happened with Bachwinkle getting the title in 1975 in November was Ray Stevens had been in and out for about a year and Ray and and Nick had lost the tag team title, and this was setting things up for uh, Bobby to take over he- Bachwinkle almost exclusively. Let me ask you this, Glenn. Sure. Was Bobby Heenan at ringside when Nick Bockwinkel won the title?
0: Now, George, I'm going to use uh, uh, some some guessing here because I was not around, but I am. I'm going to say that. uh, Well, yeah, I got to put out the disclaimer here, uh, man. Uh, I would say in that time, I would say no, he wasn't there, and then they eventually just kind of penciled it in and and did did the post interview stuff. I'm going to say no, but well, the
1: the the interesting thing is is that after Ray and Nick lost the title, the tag team title. Bobby Heenan was still there managing uh, Nick Bockwinkel, But on the night of November 8, 1975, when Vern passed the torch to Nick for the title, a lot of fans and all, I've seen it written this way, that Bobby Heenan at ringside, or with the help of Bobby Heenan, Nick Bachwinkle got the title. And I was sitting ringside, front row, and I'm here to tell you, and anyone who says differently, that Bobby Heenan was not... At ringside with nick however there was somebody else that was at ringside with nick that night and that was bob duncombe bobby duncombe and he was the one that interfered in the match and caused Vern to lose the title to nick now why bobby heenan wasn't there that night i don't recall if there was ever a reason given that part i don't remember but he wasn't at ringside that night and Then afterwards of course Bob Duncan became what Bobby called him the policeman for Nick Boxwinkel because during his early title defenses nobody was going to get to Nick unless they got past Bobby Duncan first. So there was a little play on there that I've got this policeman to protect the champion because Bobby would say and, you know I'm not going to have Nick defending to just any ham and egger out there. And which was one of his great Uh, interview lines, by the way. Everybody was a ham and egger. That was the deal. Nick wasn't uh, there with Bobby that night.
0: That's very interesting. Uh we talked we we moved uh, a, a forward a few minutes earlier to talk about Bobby's run in in, in Georgia uh, at Georgia Championship Wrestling with Oli doing the booking. Let's talk about uh, 1980 and there was a really good article uh, this week put uh, uh written by Patrick Roycey. Of course, you're definitely uh, no stranger to Roycey, right? Uh with uh, the Star Tribune and various radio personalities. He is. A, he did a, a great article about Bobby. Uh, it was called "A Self Taught Genius Who Became AWA's Wonderful Weasel." He put that out here uh, last week, and uh, one of the, the center parts of the article, and you're you're uh, quoted in this article, George is uh, one of the great gimmick matches that kind of uh, connected, put some extra spin, a little extra on it. Uh, the weasel gimmick was uh, working the actual first of the weasel matches that started to uh, brew over the next couple of years, both in the W or later on in WWF and in the AWA. But let's talk about the weasel match, because this was a great article uh, Patrick put out uh, about how the, the the first big one and, and how huge it was to, to some wrestling fans even to this day. Uh, let's talk about the the weasel match, how the weasel really became the weasel.
1: Well, and, you know, we talked about how he got the name from the crusher, the weasel, and that went on for a whole decade or better. And he was the weasel. A lot of people would say, you know, Bobby the weasel, I, Bobby the Brain And They would always try to correct themselves, the announcers. Of course, that was on purpose. But the weasel thing had escalated to the point where, and let's point out Bobby's genius here. Bobby Heenan always knew how to work the crowd and get the maximum uh, emotion from them.
0: Oh, yeah, bang, the most bang. knew that, Oh, yeah. He
1: knew that this weasel thing was really hot. And he and Greg, and let me stop right there and say this. Bobby also went to Vern and Greg on more than one occasion and said, let me work with this guy or let me work with this kid And I will get him over. And I'll give him a chance. And ironically, early on, Greg Gagne was even one of those guys. Let me work with you. Because, you know, Greg always had his own distractors because he wasn't as big as a wrestler, should be in some eyes, and he wasn't Vern Gagne, and so on and so on. So Greg working with Heenan became a natural. And finally, they come up with this weasel Suit idea. A lot of times in blow off matches, you have to have the progression of the program between the two wrestlers to get to that blow off match where there's going to be a winner, folks. We've had it, you know, whether it be the cage match or the lumberjack match or whatever stipulation match they had. This one becomes a a weasel suit match. So Greg and Bobby come up with the idea that if Greg beats Bobby, Bobby has to go into the weasel suit. And if Bobby beats Greg, Greg will go into the the weasel suit. Greg basically saying, I've had enough of this guy. He's been in my hair. He's been in Jim Brunzel's hair. And we're tired of him. And we're going to fix him. And we're going to prove he's a weasel. And I'm going to prove that I can beat him. And I'm going to shut him up. Heenan on on the other hand saying, Greg, you can't beat me. You won't beat me. So on and so forth. So the the ultimate climax comes when they create this weasel suit. Now in the auditorium, Greg wins. Fans are ecstatic. Bobby Heathen is stomping around the ring. Now he's gotta put that weasel suit on. He's not gonna do it. Wally Carbo gets in the ring. You're gonna do it, you know, Wally's doing the usual. You'll do it or you'll be suspended and you'll never wrestle here again and, and you won't manage anybody and Heenan is stomping in the Civic Center ring. The referee's there. Greg is there. And, of course, Wally. And Greg just goes behind Bobby and clamps the sleeper hold on him during all of this fuss. Because Bobby's not going to put the suit on. He puts him to sleep. So now Bobby Heenan is laying prone in the ring. And what do Wally and the referee and Greg do? They stuff him into this white weasel suit. Now, there's pictures of this thing on the Internet, and there are pictures floating around out there. We're talking a full-scale suit, white, furry, big paws, a big long tail, uh, over the head with ears, and it's just crazy looking. Once they have him stuffed in it, Greg slaps him a couple times across the face to wake him up and Bobby groggily starts moving, and then he starts trying to stand up, and he's tripping. He's got these great big feet on this weasel suit, and then he starts looking at his hands, and he's got these huge paws, and he starts hitting the ropes, and he's trying to get out of it, and the fans are ecstatic. It's, you know, the cheers. Bobby Heenan put on this great show, and they did this not only in the Civic Center, But there were three or four other uh, AWA cities that had this classic blow-off match. But therein lies the genius, because you have such a great gimmick match. And of course, you gave the fans what they came to see. And Bobby was the one that came up with the idea. Greg, let's do a weasel suit match. And when they first went... To Wally Carbo and said, "We need to have a weasel suit made. Made, you know, a what? Well, there you go.
0: <laughs> yeah, the the, the and Bob... it's out there. There are some videos out there. Oh, it Bob Bobby flopping around in that suit. I mean, Bobby, man, that guy took the bump. He he, the Bobby Heenan bumps were were amazing because. The way he would just flip himself around, it was just like a a rag doll. He had just the right spots at the right moment, and that weasel suit is another clear indication of when he, of a great moment with Bobby just bumping around himself. People talk about people so good that in the ring that they work with a broom. Well, Bobby just worked with himself. He could flip around in an old weasel suit or just flip on a rope. Bobby was good against with himself, basically.
1: Oh yeah. And Glenn, I'm sure you remember this. Do you remember when a wrestler, whoever his opponent was, would, would give him a solid you know, punch across the face or whatever it was? And Bobby would just do that flip like a 60-degree turn before he'd hit the mat. He was so good at it. And his fluid motion when he'd be thrown into that turnbuckle and he would do that flip over the top rope, bounce onto the ring apron and then down to the floor. Now fans can recall that Ray Stevens did that really well. Mm -hmm. And Ric Flair had his own version of it later on. And, and Rick did it probably in every match he ever wrestled after that. But Bobby didn't do it that often, but when he did was like, oh my God, he's going to kill himself the way he would go over that rope and hit that turnbuckle and go over that rope. And it looked so real. And Bobby had that ability. And he never, I said this to somebody earlier this week. I said, you know, I wonder if Bobby Heenan even knew how good he was. It probably was just so natural to him. And I use the analogy, Glenn, you know, we've all known uh, talented artists who can draw so well and create characters on paper and do it so well. And I look at him and I say, I can't even draw a stick, man. You know, I have no talent at all. But those artists, I knew one guy many years ago who had such talent drawing cartoons and characters. He, he just went, it's no big deal, man. I, I don't know. I don't know what the fuss is. You know, he didn't realize that that was something special. And I, I just wonder if Bobby was one of those elite like that where if he even knew his own genius and then let's talk about that weasel thing a little bit more sure. bobby's genius was so good that he would come on tv interviews and he'd get excited you know as only bobby could and he'd say i'm sick and tired and i'm not imitating bobby here because i can't do it but you know he'd tell fans And the announcer, I'm sick of these weasel suit posters. And I'm sick of being called the weasel. I'm the brain. I have a brain. And I don't want to see any weasel posters. Well, of course, you know what that does. That gets everybody at the fans at the auditoriums and everything to yell, weasel, weasel, and, and get posters and make posters. But Bobby himself was selling a weasel poster, a picture of him like in the weasel suit as a weasel fans didn't know that there was a concession table set up with some workers there that were selling these weasel posters and the fans were buying them and when bobby would come into the civic center ring or whatever arena he was in these fans would be holding them up and bobby would be kicking the ropes and upset and telling the referee he wants these posters put away the irony of it is that they were bobby enid's posters so he was promoting himself
0: And picking up a few, few, few coins along the way, too, I mean. Yeah, isn't that awesome? Oh, that is genius. That's why Bobby was... Bobby is the breeze because he's such said he's such a natural flow to how he did his thing in pro wrestling, whether it be in the, like you said, in the ring with some of these uh, big time bumps, he'd take uh, these flops to the interviews. Man, you know, back in the day, it, it, again, this is a difference between yesterday and today. There was bullet points to hit. You relied on your wits. And Bobby, man, it just seemed like he was like always clicking with the right thing at the right time, a natural natural comedian with natural comedic timing on top of his uh, good wrestling instincts.
1: Well, and the timing thing was always really good. And when you talk about his interviews, you know, back in that era, we didn't have the four or five, uh, 15, 20 minute interviews. Like, like it is more common today in that era, you only had that two or three minutes on your interview time on the local wrestling program where you had to get yourself over. The announcer would deliver your line about who you were wrestling or what the town was, and then it was up to the wrestler to either make you love him or hate him. And in the case of Heenan, you would hate him. But his wit, I'll give you a couple of examples of his outstanding wit, and these are just a couple because there were so many. If you, if you as a fan were, were watching Bobby Heenan in that era and listening to him, If you really start to think about it, you had to laugh. And here's one of them. I'm going to give you two of them. Sure. The first one, Nick Bockwinkle, sophisticated, intellectual, well-dressed, wearing the diamond rings, the fancy watches as the champion. He is the elite. He has to wrestle Mad Dog Vashon on Thanksgiving Day night, which was an annual card for uh st paul minneapolis the mad dog he was a baby face at the time but we all know the dog Mm -hmm. he was uh growling and spitting and and he was unorthodox and he kicked and he stomped and he bit and here's bobby heenan well first of all nick says in the interview mad dog vashon can't come up to my level he's been in the gutter so long He can't come up to my level, but if I have to face him, I will go down his level for one night and I will beat him and keep my title. Bobby Heenan chimes in. And when you see Bobby Heenan chime in, he's got a rolled up newspaper in his hand and he's hitting the paper on his arm, kind of slapping it on his arm. Mm -hmm. And he says, and I, and again, I'm, Paraphrasing, I'm not giving you the exact quote, but I'm paraphrasing here. He says that he's upset that Nick has to defend his title to this this dog, this animal. And he says, Nick is going to beat him. He's going to stomp him. He's going to get him down on the mat. And when the dog is laying down there, he says, you you take a newspaper to him. And he says, and what we're going to do is we're going to kick the dog's teeth out. Both of them. (laughs) Now, I only stopped because Bobby Heenan didn't stop after he said both of them. He continued to rant. But I I stopped because I wanted you to hear those two words, both of them. And therein (laughs) lies the humor and the wit. And when you hear that interview, and that interview may well be out there, too, for YouTube listeners, if you were able to type them in. I know I've seen it. Uh, a few times since it actually aired back in the early 80s. But what a classic line. We're going to kick his teeth out, both of them. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's gold that's beyond money. Well, here's another one that was really classic, and you talk about timing. Marty O'Neill, when he was doing wrestling, and we all know Marty and Gene Okerlund. Their their deliveries were a little bit different in wrestling. But Marty was more, just deliver the lines, very more straight-laced. And I will tell you something about this afterwards about Marty, but here's the interview. This is early 70s when Marty was still doing TV, and Vern Gagne is going to defend his title to Nick Bockwenkel. Bobby Heenan says that Nick is going to beat him. And Marty is asking him, well, what, what is Nick going to be able to do with the champion? And he gives the accolades of Vern Gagne, how good he is, and so on. And Marty and uh, Bobby says, I'm not going to tell you what Nick is going to do. I'm not going to let these ham and out here know what Nick is going to do. But we have a secret. We have a hold that Nick is going to use, and Vern Gagne is going to go down. And he says, Marty, I'm going to show you what that is. And he turns around and he puts this large piece of uh, what looks like a magazine in front of Marty. He says, This is what Nick Bachwinkle's going to use on Varangania. And Marty looks at it and goes, All right, well, fans, we'll be right back. Well, Marty was starting to crack up. Bobby had shown Marty a Playboy centerfold. <laughs> okay yeah that's great (laughs) now that's awesome yeah and that's what that's what nick was going to use now we had the chance many probably a year or so later marty did you know that that was coming from bobby and he said i had no idea he says it was that was the beauty of bobby heenan because i just give him the line and he'd go with it and when he did that, I all but lost it. And I could only say, we'll be right back, fans.
0: What a professional to hold it together, though, to get out and get that out cue. I mean, that's amazing.
1: And I mean, that was something that Bobby did. I don't know where he came up with it, but it was for the moment. And uh, there was a time when uh, in the WWF when Bobby was doing some commentary, uh, talking with probably Gorilla or whoever he was doing it with, and he was talking about the sheep herders uh, the bushwhackers as they were called in WWF and if WWF fans remember the bushwhackers you know they were pretty much toothless or missing teeth etc so we're back to this tooth thing like he did with the dog and bobby and again i'm just paraphrasing this he made the comment that y- you know what they use for dental floss they use rope meaning that it's so wide there's so you know
0: so again
1: you've got to listen to it to really go oh my god that is
0: hilarious oh and that's how good he was oh absolutely and it's amazing how good he he was because you know we've talked almost an hour and we we didn't even get into the 1980s aside from just a couple of comments here and there in passing but that is a testament to just how many memories Bobby had in the AWA and the WWE alone and in, in the 1970s to uh, actually have this uh, go uh, the hour, the time limit that it did. I mean, like we could talk for hours about Bobby, man, but wow, we, we just made it through the well, decade, you, you man. You
1: sure could. You sure could. And, and let me say this, the WWE showed a, I want to say it was a four or five minute video tribute this past week on Monday night, raw. And, I will give them credit as usual. Their video production was good. It it was a nice presentation. But here was the rub, Glenn. If you watched it, there was not one single reference to Bobby Heenan before he went to the WWF, WWE. There was only video footage of him in the WWE. And, And what irritated me about that was that they just took 18 years, previous Bobby Heenan, all the classic Bockwinkel, all the classic Stevens Bachwinkle Lanza, Brezhnikov, Bob Horton Jr., Super Destroyer Mark II, Jesse Ventura, all these guys, Lars Anderson, Larry Hennig, Harley Race, that he had managed in the AWA and or WWA, and they totally ignored it. That That's frustrated me. So what I've been doing when I've been talking about Bobby Heenan this past week is I've tried to share Bobby Heenan before he hit the WWF E and show the genius of this man, that it wasn't WWE that created this great character. And they also showed in their video, the weasel suit match. However, it wasn't Greg great. It was WWE footage. Of the ultimate warrior stuffing Bobby into the weasel suit,
0: yeah, that's a shame so because there again that's a guy, George, that treated Bobby terribly in the ring, so yeah, they, they showed that stock clip, but that kind of irked me yes, I know the warrior' has been gone, but you got to fa you know remember the fact that the warrior roughed him up a lot in those matches and probably exacerbated what you know was already probably a pre-existing condition with his neck and and, and messed up yep. his in-ring stuff.
1: Yep, exactly. And that was the reason I got upset with the WWE's tribute. However, and I don't want to bash them, because we all know that it wrestling's different. But it was not the kind of tribute that you would give to somebody. If you're going to truly give them a tribute, if they weren't going to do anything else with the with the previous 18 years, I would have rather they just put at the beginning of their program a picture of Bobby Heenan and his passing in memory, that sort of thing and left it alone. Because that would have been better for me than to have them eliminate and show only what they want fans to see it's and a, that was not the bobby heenan that i remember
0: it's an unfair revisioning of as history. we
1: end as we end very quickly we all know that bobby suffered for a good 10 to 15 years with his throat cancer suffered more than any human should have to do no one no one should have to go through that type of and if you've seen pictures of him at the end I mean, there was no, no resemblance of Bobby Heenan at all. It was a completely different person. He lost his ability to speak. It's a sad ending. And the irony of it is, is that probably, if we're really honest, Bobby Heenan as we remembered him left many years ago. I'm only happy that it, now he's no longer suffering and he's at peace. And we get to remember what a great contribution he made to pro wrestling, and our memories. And I hope he's at home with the Lord, resting in peace.
0: And also, I think he made his uh, morning start time uh, to get on on TV in the sky for Vern. Yeah, I think he made it just in time. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure, George. It's always wonderful to uh, share memories with you, even during the saddest of times. Uh, it's it's great to have you, man, because we need these messengers to pass on and to remind people sometimes in the wake of the WWE machine that there is so much out there that just gets forgotten. And boy, what a major oversight that they uh, perpetrated this week by not mentioning a, uh, the AWA or, his, you know, the past run before his WWE uh, era because that just didn't seem right. But George, thank you so much because I appreciate each and every week. And I also just appreciate the education both I get and the listener gets at home. And it's always an honor sharing wrestling memories with you, my friend.
1: I'm um, thank you for that, Glenn. And I'm looking forward to doing it again, but let's not be talking about a deceased wrestler in all hopes. I hope that's not happening.
0: Yep. I already, uh, this for next week, George, we have a guarantee slam dunk. I, um, had a chance to uh, talk with uh, Boris Zukov. So he's going to be sharing some of his memories in the ring on our next edition of Wrestling Memories. So uh, we'll remember Bobby, and we'll remember remember just the old-school territory days of the last days of it with Boris Zukov next week. So we'll have a, a fun—it uh, was a lively conversation, George, and I, I know you'll enjoy it, uh, and I know the fans will too.
1: Sounds great. Looking forward to it. As always, Glenn, thank you for having me on with you.
0: For George Shire, I'm Glenn Bronkett. This has been Rasslin' Memories on Pioneer 90.1.